Thanksgiving is behind us. Black Friday is behind us. Cyber Monday ahead. The most thing I'm most excited about, it's, it's December 1st. Anyone else just like blown away that it's December? Where did 2019 go? Uh, my favorite part of the first week of December is that basically it's now appropriate to start talking about a part of the American cultural landscape and Christmas that's totally underappreciated, undervalued, and that is the white elephant gift exchange. Uh, who here has been a part of one before? Raise your hand. Oh, cool. All right. About three-fifths of the room. Who hasn't been a part of it before? Have I just made it really weird? Nick. Sorry. Totally just <laughs> You're not the only one. I'm sure there's more people that just didn't raise their hand. You're the only courageous one. Okay. So for, um, for your benefit and anyone else that doesn't know what the uh, white elephant is, it's a really fun party. Basically, everybody shows up and brings a gift. It's a wrapped gift, so you don't know what it is. And depending on the party, people can bring different boxes that throw you off in terms of what's actually inside of it. And so the way you play it, let's say there's 10 people. Everybody gets a number, 1 through 10, and then you start with number 1. The first person picks a gift. The next person then has a choice. You can either grab a different gift, or you can steal the one that's already out there. So does it make sense? Pick or steal. And then after a certain point, I think it's like after three times, you can't steal that gift anymore. It's just locked. It's yours. So I love this game. There's a decent bit of strategy involved, mostly luck, but it's a super fun game, and I am a huge fan of it. And so I want to tell you about what happened during, uh, during the White Elephant Party of 2011 that uh, Heather and I were a part of. You know where I'm going with this? Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> this was in Carlsbad. Heather and I, I think, were engaged at the time with some of her uh, college friends that were throwing this white elephant party. And it was largely, Heather and I, we, we didn't meet in college, we met after, so it was a bunch of people I didn't know, so it's my introverted dream. Uh, <laughs> and I thought about, like, what gift to, to bring, and typically gifts are either funny or nice. That's kind of the, if you've never been a part of a white elephant, typically you go either funny or nice. And so uh, the nice gifts kind of tend to be like the hot commodities, like that Augie's gift card, everyone's going to want that. Uh, But it's nice, but it's not really funny. No one's laughing about lattes. And so, you know, espresso cracks me up, said no one ever kind of thing. So, but but funny gifts totally get a reaction. But few of us actually want to take like a pizza jumpsuit home or actually like use that plant urinal that the person brought to the party. Or actually, like, wear that inflatable unicorn head out the door. Uh, or, like, actually put that animal flatulence book on your coffee table uh, for the rest of the year. Nobody really wants that. So, as I was thinking about it, I was like, I want something right in between funny and nice. I want to be, like, right where funny and nice meet. And so, this was 10 years ago. The white elephant kind of game has really changed. And there's a lot more of that that you can get. Like, I was looking it up. And uh, nowadays you can get like a tea infuser shaped like a narwhal, or shark slippers, or magnets shaped like dog butts. Uh, it was kind of like funny and nice, you know, and, and all that. But, then, but back then it was tough. Like you actually had to think about it. And so I was thinking about it and I was like, I got it. This Christmas, this is a decade ago, this Christmas, what's happening? We're in a recession. The economy is really tight. There was a major economic slowdown, if you don't remember this. Uh, it got so bad, the government just started printing money. It's like, we can't even figure out what to do. We're just going to print money. Uh, see if it, this helps at all. 
And so I was, I was chewing on it. I was like, oh, I know. I'm going to give the gift of savings this Christmas. Uh, that'll be, you know, somebody will chuckle at that, and, uh, and it'll be nice. So I bought an electronic coin bank, and I wrapped it, and I brought it, and I thought it was brilliant. Uh, in my mind, it's at worst kind of moderate chuckle range uh, with room for more, depending on the room, and, uh, and totally useful. So I saw basically zero downside to this gift, and in hindsight, I probably should have lowered my expectations, uh, but, um, but that, this was 10 years ago. Nowadays, you can actually buy like a farting coin bank. It's a real thing. So problem solved. So funny and nice. Um, so, but th- you know, that didn't exist. So I went ahead with my plan to give the gift of savings in that down economy. So the guy who hosted the party, one of Heather's old college friends, uh, ended up picking this gift. And he was not amused at all. He was mad. And he let everyone know about it. He's like, I can't, what is this? Who brought this? I can't believe anyone would bring this. This is so stupid. Who would want this? So he went on and on critiquing the gift and by extension the mystery gift giver, moi. And, um, and it was kind of like, you know, he'd get quiet, he'd get quiet, and then you'd hear him mutter like, this is so stupid. It was like one of those kind of situations. And his poor wife was mortified at the whole thing. It was really awkward. But here's the thing, like my gift was accidentally brilliant because it actually, uh, no one's stealing that thing. So I took him out of the game right away. <laughs> that was, I didn't even think about that, but that just happened. So, and it was game over for him. It was also game over for us. We never went back to that white elephant party ever again. So as I was thinking about this, like why did it go so badly? And I think there's kind of two reasons why it went badly. First of all, I probably overthought things a little bit and uh, kind of missed the obvious. Classic me. Who wants a, like a coin bank? Uh, it's supposed to be a party. It's supposed to be fun. Um, but at a deeper level, I really think this went badly because he got a gift he didn't want. And I think that's a reality that we don't think about much, but it's true. Like, we receive gifts we don't want all the time. I remember when, um, when I was nine, my buddy, a buddy of mine had his birthday, and he kept getting, like, one sweater after another and then, like, one pair of socks after another. And you could just see his anger just boiling. And this is all captured on tape, which is amazing. We've, we've watched it recently as grown-ups. And he just goes, ah, I want more toys! It just, like, came out of him. And we get, we get gifts we don't want. It's just a thing. Uh, that's why re-gifting is alive and well today. And I think it's kind of easy to kind of judge the guy who threw like a toddler tantrum at our white elephant uh, thing, and then we could kind of laugh at a nine-year-old who's like, I really want a Nerf gun or, uh, you know, a football or whatever. But the truth is, I'm pretty sure that, um, yeah, we, we re-gift stuff all the time. It's just a reality. We get gifts we, want, we don't want regularly. I think we have like a pink pony sleeping bag in our garage right now that we're pretty sure we got re-gifted uh, last Christmas. If anybody wants it, by the way, see me after. I'd be happy to provide that for you. Uh, but as I've been kind of thinking through this message, there's actually a reality that like, there's, we get all kinds of stuff that we don't want in the moment, but that actually end up being really important later, or that can be. So I remember uh, a few years ago, there was this 20-year-old car with like a quarter million miles that was sitting in uh, Heather's grandma's uh, house. Nobody was using it. And it was the kind of thing where it's like, Grams, just get rid of that thing. Uh, nobody's going to use that thing. Until, of course, my car dies, and the gift of savings has dried up, 
and I'm on foot with limited options, then it's like, Grams is like, what was that you were saying about the car? <laughs> or like the gift of socks. Uh, if you're having the cold, you're going to be really glad that you have that gift of socks. Or if you ever caught outdoors, uh, you know you can actually use those socks to filter out water from mud. It's a real thing you can actually do. Uh, if you're ever in a bench, or if you're ever like being attacked by an animal, you can like put rocks in a sock and... <laughs> It's a real thing. Or you can use it to dress a wound. It's a real thing. These are things that happen. And it, this is why millions of people watched Bear Grylls do this stuff on TV. Does anybody watch Bear Grylls? Does anybody know who that guy is? You just drop him in the Grand Canyon. He's like, figure it out, bro. See you in three days. And he's like, all right, I got it. You know? And he, he took everyday common items like the socks you got for Christmas and showed us how they could save your life. And millions of people watched this. So what's my point in saying all this? Uh, yes, I'm really excited about white elephant parties. If you want to invite me to yours, feel free. Maybe you don't want to invite me to yours. <laughs> but my point is this. There are gifts that we don't want that can actually be of great value to us when we see them in a different light. And I think it really helps to have like a wise, experienced person around, like a Bear grills, for example, who can kind of like help us see the potential packed into the ordinary stuff of life. And so I have good news. We have someone in this life who is greater than Bear Grylls. His name is Jesus. And he actually, I really do think that today, like, he wants to go Bear Grylls on us and, helps us and help us see some things in, like, a fresh way. So as we head into the holidays, I was thinking about this. There is one gift that every single one of us, I think, if you want this gift, we should talk afterwards because this is strange. Uh, there's, a, there's a gift that none of us, pretty much none of us want and all of us are going to get, almost without exception, and we cannot re-gift it. Does anybody know what gift that is this holiday season? Grace? No, we want grace, I think. <laughs> I, want, I hope. No, that is a gift. Grace is a gift, but I want that one. It's conflict. Conflict is the one. That's what I was looking for, conflict. Um, but we need grace to work through this conflict. That's, that's the point of my message today, actually. <laughs> Can't re-gift that one. All right, so I'm talking about conflict today. So if you're taking notes, here are my main points. If you want to write these down, I think they might be up on a slide. Here are my three points. Number one, what is conflict? I'm actually going to break it down. What is conflict biblically? Number two, how is it a gift? And number three, how do we handle conflict well? What is conflict? How is it a gift? How do we handle conflict well? So, this felt appropriate because uh, Thanksgiving just happened and we have Christmas to look forward to. So for some of us, we're like just exiting out of conflict and getting ready to go back into it uh, with our extended family. And that was kind of the story of our Thanksgiving. Uh, but, um, but I want to talk to you guys about this. As we get started, though, I want to let you guys know there is this terrific little book that's called Resolving Everyday Conflict by this guy's name is Ken Sandy. A lot of the stuff that I'm going to talk about today was inspired, uh, quoted directly from this book. So this is a major, major resource. It's very small. It's only about 100 pages. But I think it's kind of like a discipleship essential for how to do conflict. And um, the concepts in that book are really helpful, and they've shaped my thinking on this topic almost as much as anything outside the Bible. So that's not in your library. highly recommend adding it. So number one, what is conflict? How would you define conflict? 
How does it look in your mind as you think about conflict? What do you envision? How do you feel? Maybe you feel tense just thinking about it. How do you know when you're in the middle of conflict with other people? So I typically think of Thanksgiving, the table's set, the plates are down, the turkey's in the middle, and there's family, and somebody says, so do you think there was a quid pro quo or no? Go. (laughs) That's what I think of when I think of conflict. It's like political, it's politics that will set us off into this conflict. Um, But it's not just politics. And really, conflict happens whenever we're at odds with someone over what they think, over what they do, over what they say. And it can be very small or it can be very big. So small disagreements. uh, This happens every day in my house. Uh, One of my kids wants to watch one TV show, Octonauts, and the other one wants to watch the other one, Masha and the Bear. And then it's like, put up your dukes, brother, and then fighting ensues. Or your brother is beating you at Ken Griffey Jr. Baseball, and you're down to your last out, so you turn the Nintendo off after you hit the ground ball that was going to end the game so that you don't lose. <laughs> Lewis, if you're watching this, I love you and I've grown as a person. <laughs> Siblings get this. Uh, parents do too, though. So, like, if your child does something that negatively affects someone else's child, odds are you're going to find yourself in conflict with those other parents. Uh, that happened. That was our Thanksgiving. Uh, employees feel this. Your coworker no-shows, doesn't come through, misses a deadline, you're kind of left holding the bag. Conflict. Uh, Sometimes there are bigger disagreements. Sometimes it can be a spouse making a financial decision without consulting their other spouse, and then disagreement happens. Or you might be in a romantic relationship, and your significant other has a different vision, a different timeline of what marriage looks like than you do. That can lead to conflict. Uh, Sometimes it's just like, Disagreement it could be like a family or a friend that disagrees with you on anything. They could disagree with you on how you spend your money. Uh, I've, had, I've had issues with my family and like career choice, uh, like certain people not approving of my career choice. Uh, sometimes it's like, who are you dating? I've had issues with that, not with Heather, but, um, <laughs> but in the past, I've had issues with that. Uh, you know, how you parent, uh, whatever. There's just a number of things that can cause conflict. At the end of the day, it comes down to this. like You want something and you don't get it. And in some cases, we take matters into our own hands, and it makes things really bad. And the kind of classic text is James 4, 1 to 2, and uh, we should have it up on the slide. This is from James 4. It says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. So here's the thing. Powerful words, by the way. Um, I don't know if you're here. I don't know where you're at. You may, you, know, you may have grown up in the church or maybe not, and maybe you're skeptical or not. Wherever you're at, you're welcome here. And I just think one of the things I love about the Bible is it is brutally honest. And this rings true, does it not, in terms of explaining conflict? I think this, this just resonates with life experience. And there's some conflict that's just due to misunderstanding. That's a reality. And the fact that we're just different people. I do things a certain way. You do things a different way. I'm differently gifted than you are. And so sometimes that causes conflict. That's, that's one thing. Um, but there's a good deal of conflict that's just like the result of our self-focus. Uh, what I want, what I need, what I prefer, what I desire can rub up against 
what you want, what you desire, what you need. And so I might respond in different ways. I could get sarcastic. I could get uh, argumentative. I can make cutting remarks about you. Uh, I can try to intimidate you. I can become critical or passive-aggressive. I could do a variety of different things to get what I want. I remember I had one conflict several years back. Uh, someone that I actually did not know well had, took an issue with something I said and was upset. And I've had, like, years to think through this stuff, and I realized, like, this conflict, it, it went poorly. Thankfully, it ended well, but it started poorly, and it took a while. But the biggest thing I wanted out of this conflict was I wanted to be vindicated. I wanted this person's negative assumptions about me to be proven wrong. So I argued like a lawyer. Then I brought, you know, exhibits, exhibit A of my good behavior, exhibit B of my good behavior, exhibit C, my good behavior. I'm not as bad as you think. Let me prove it to you. I cross-examined the witness. Are you sure? How do you know? Couldn't those words have meant this? Here's what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear from this person. You're right. You're amazing. I'm a fool. You're brilliant. How could I have ever doubted you? That's basically what I wanted at the end of the day. If I'm completely honest, I wanted my good name cleared. I wanted to show that I was in the right. That's what I wanted. So James would say when someone threatened me with, you know, threatened what I wanted most, which was their approval, <laughs> excuse me, their approval, I kind of got wound up in this messy, drawn-out conflict. And it went from bad to worse with someone in the church with my sister. It was not great. Um, I'll talk about how it kind of got resolved later. But um, I want to ask a question, like, can you relate to this experience? Think about a time when you were at odds with someone. What caused the conflict? What did you want from that person, that situation? What did the other person do? How did you respond to them? The big question, how did it go? And what was the impact on the relationship? I don't know, hard questions to think through, if we're honest. Sometimes conflict gets dealt with directly, and it's resolved quickly. But unfortunately, more often than not, it's messy, and it's kind of dragged out, and it takes a toll on us and our relationships. So, so even something that starts really small can devolve into this long, drawn-out dispute that just drains us of our energy, our vitality, can even consume us to some degree, our resources, and over time, it can really wear us down. So the stakes, actually, I think, for conflict could not be higher for us personally for our well-being, for our spiritual health. But here's the thing that I've been thinking about. It's not just about us individually. It's about us collectively. It's about us collectively. Jesus told us, told his disciples, and by extension, us. How will the world know that you're mine? By your love. It's by our love for one another that we'll know his disciples, that the world will know that we're his disciples. So it's not only our personal relationships that are on the line in conflict. It's actually our witness in the world that's on the line in our conflict. In our conflict, So, I think it's fair to say, if you're in here and you want to follow Jesus, you probably want your life to be inviting, to draw people in because Jesus is really good. And you want people to know, Jesus is really good. He's worth pursuing. I've, I've pursued him. You can too. And he will help you. He will change your life. And so, we, if you want that, and I assume pretty much everyone here, in here does, and if you don't right now, that's totally okay. I'm glad that you're here. This is a safe place to come and learn. One of the things that we have to learn to do is handle conflict in a way that leads us towards greater love for one another. 
We have to learn that. And one of the things that I've learned in the midst of conflict is that forgiving someone that hurts me is really hard. It's like really, really hard. In fact, I've had moments uh, where I felt like this conflict is impossible, this is pointless, and I cannot forgive this person. And in a room this size, my hunch is I am absolutely not alone. Maybe you've known that you need to forgive someone but been unable to. And I'm not talking about like sweeping things under the rug, calling it forgiveness, but then you find out later, actually, it's still there. It hasn't been dealt with. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about dealing honestly with what happened and choosing to forgive and release someone who has done you wrong. It feels impossible, and I want you guys to know in some ways, it is. If you've ever been there, it's okay. It is impossible. But here's the good news. Jesus. Jesus takes care of our greatest problem. Our greatest conflict is actually not between you and me. Our greatest conflict is actually between us and God because of our sin. Going back to the whole original kind of conversation around gifts we don't want, sin in a sense is not wanting the gift of Jesus. Jesus, the one who made us, who values us, who loves us, who sustains us. It's almost like he's, like, he's on one knee with a ring asking, like, will you marry me? And we're like, that's nice, Jesus, and we kind of brush him away. And we just keep talking. You know what I really want is power. I want to be recognized. I want to be seen. I want to be heard. I want pleasure. I want cool experiences. I want money. I want stuff. I want a great career. I want status recognition, uh, a good reputation, successful children, or whatever. But at the end of the day, sin is wanting something more than Jesus. It's deeply personal. Like imagine someone getting their marriage proposal rejected because, hey, something better might come along for me. Like, that hurts. It's deeply personal. Sin is not abstract. It's personal. It's us and Jesus. Personal. And if you don't know this, everyone sins. Every single person in this room. If you're breathing, you're sinning. Well, (laughs) you know what I mean. It's not, you know what I mean. So how does Jesus respond to this deeply personal offense? This rejection. We've got some verses, Romans 5, 6 to 11. I want you guys just to let these verses kind of wash over you. These are really important. And if you haven't read the book of Romans, it's worth diving into. The first, I don't know, one, two, two and a half chapters, it's like a really honest look at humanity. And it is not pretty. It's really ugly, in fact. It's basically like, we're all screwed. In a nutshell, if you want to, just the spark notes, we're screwed. But God, here it is, Romans 5, 6 to 11. For while we were still helpless, and the reason we're screwed is because God isn't, he's a just judge. He's not cool with sin. He's not cool with us hurting each other, as you would expect. Judges that don't uh, judge rightly are corrupt judges, and God is certainly not that. And so as a righteous judge, judgment is all we can expect. But here's what it says, Romans 5, 6 to 11. For while we were still helpless... Helpless, powerless in our sin, captivated by it, unable to get ourselves free of it. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly or the wicked. Jesus died for the wicked. You guys ever pondered that deeply? For the wicked person. Which means he died for all of us. Which means we're wicked. 
For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. So the, the whole thing about the cross, it was God's way of declaring us who are not righteous to be righteous. There's a great exchange that happens on the cross. Your sin put on Jesus, Jesus' righteousness given to you. Verse 10. Or verse 9. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more... Having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And here's the thing I want. If you're taking notes, this is worth writing down. Big takeaway from this, even though Jesus himself was the offended party, he chose to move towards us to restore the relationship with us. Even though Jesus was the offended party, he chose to move towards us to restore our relationship with him. What condition were we in when he did that? Ungodly. Wicked. Wicked. So were we deserving? Was this like, hey, you've turned the corner. I see that. I'm coming after you. Was that it? No, it wasn't that. He was the offended party, and he chose to move towards us. That's the gospel, and that's the foundation for our conflict. And we will never do conflict well unless we get this, unless we understand this. The gospel is the foundation for how we handle conflict. It is our hope in the midst of conflict. And honestly, if Jesus was able to forgive us, and he lives in us. If you, be, if you put your faith in Jesus, the scriptures talk about how Jesus lives in you. He can empower you to actually forgive other people to handle conflict in a new and healthy way. I'm not saying it's easy. And I mentioned earlier, like, I think it's impossible to forgive. And that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need his grace. That's why we need to depend on him. We need to receive his gift and then by his grace put it into action. So what is conflict? Conflict happens whenever we're at odds with each other over what we want. And our greatest conflict was with God over sin. But Jesus, even though he was the offended party, he chose to move towards us to restore our relationship with him. That's our hope and our foundation in the midst of conflict. So, point number two, how is conflict a gift? How is conflict a gift? We're going to read a story out of Matthew 18 that I think helps it to clarify this really well. Matthew 18, verses 23 to 35. This is called the parable of the unforgiving servant. Verse 21 says this, Then Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples, approached him, Jesus, and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times, which he thought was like, that's like all-star, MVP-level forgiveness. And Jesus says, I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70, 70 times seven. And that doesn't mean like literally, I think 70 times seven is 490. So when you get to 491... You're good. You're done. Uh, I think it's basically Jesus saying, like, Peter, how about infinity? That's basically what I think he's telling him. How often should I forgive? As many times as you need to. Verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. Now, I had a lot of fun, way too much fun, figuring out how much money 10,000 talents is. I can't show you my work because it would take too long, but it's about $10 billion, okay? Or about 5,000 lifetimes of work. 
And that's assuming that you aren't charged interest, which in this world wouldn't happen. So 5,000 plus lifetimes of work. So this guy, this guy owed, basically the big idea is he could never pay this off. He just, he couldn't. There's just absolutely no way whatsoever that he could ever pay that off. But here's what it says, verse 26. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me. I will pay you everything in 5,000 lives. If you don't mind waiting uh, 200 million years, which is actually, I think, what it comes out to. (laughs) Thanks, Tom. Um, I'll pay you back everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion released him, and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants. Okay, so, sorry, I went past this way too quickly. This is insane. $10 billion. Can you imagine anyone who has that kind of money forgiving that kind of debt in this world? Out of compassion. Out of like, I'm moved deeply by your pity and your bad math, because you will never pay that back. (laughs) I think that's when the master knew, like, you're never going to figure this one out, bud. Uh, No, he had compassion on the guy. Like, he loved him. That's deep love. That's deep care. That's deep affection. He's taking a bath financially, to put it nicely. I mean, $10 billion. It's a ton of money. So then after that, he gets out. The guy who was forgiven gets out. He's forgiven. He gets a fresh start, a new beginning for his life. Then what happens? That servant went out, verse 28, and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. I also had way too much fun figuring out how much a hundred denarii actually comes out to. It's about 15 grand, give or take. So, mo- so 5,000 years of work or about three or four months of work. That was the difference between the, the debts. And the guy said, pay me what you owe. And obviously at this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. And that's actually pretty much word for word what this guy who's now withholding forgiveness told his, his master. Same words. But how did, he, how did this guy respond? Verse 30. He wasn't willing. He wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay back what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. So, obviously, pretty intense story, Jesus. But I think it's intense for a reason. And I think this is really important. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Why did I read that story? I think that story helps us see that, like, why conflict is a gift. Conflict is a gift because it reveals what we believe about the gospel. Write that down. Chew on that one this week, because I've been chewing on it. It's going to help. Conflict is a gift because it reveals what we believe about the gospel. 
if we know we're really sinful, like 10,000 talents sinful, $10 billion sinful, and yet really loved, our master has said, I'll forgive you, I'll release you, I have compassion on you, I forgive your debts, then we can be gracious to others who are really sinful and really loved too. I'm not saying this is going to be easy. It won't be. I'm not saying it's not going to be messy. It will be. But I'm saying it's possible because of Jesus, because of what he did for us. Now, and also on the flip side of that, if we're really bad enough that Jesus had to die for us and if he was willing to stare our ugliness in the face and bear it on the cross, then we don't have to pretend we're awesome. We don't have to lawyer our way through conflict like I did earlier. We get to be honest. So, very quickly, I'm just going to read these four things. There's four ways the gospel frees us to do conflict well. I think there might be a slide for it. So the four ways are, this is, by the way, straight from Ken Sandy's book, such a good resource. Check it out. Number one, we can love our enemies because we were once God's enemies, and we've been freely shown what it's like to be freely forgiven and pursued. There's the gospel foundation. Number two, we can take initiative to resolve conflict. We don't have to wait for somebody to come to us. We can go to them because that's how Jesus treated us. Number three, we can admit our faults. We don't have to cover them up. We don't have to lawyer. Like, we could basically, like, put our JD aside or whatever uh, that we don't have because we're actually not that great at it. Uh, We can just basically put that aside and, and we can admit our faults. And then number four, conflict becomes an opportunity to reflect his love by the way we love one another. Do you guys see how this is a gift? Conflict reveals to us where we're at with the gospel. It's actually an invitation to trust Jesus. That's what conflict is. So how do we do this well? Point number three, how do we do conflict well? So I'm going to share like a conflict resolution framework. I'm going to work through it pretty quickly. I'm going to, try, I'm going to do my best to work through it quickly. And as we walk through it, I just want you to think about your own life and your relationships. Is there a situation right now that you're facing where you need help resolving a conflict? Maybe it's a conflict that's kind of out in the open. Uh, Or maybe it's more just friction in a relationship. Maybe it's frustration. Maybe it's tension. Uh, Whatever it is, I just want to encourage you to keep that in mind as we kind of walk through this and ask God to help you draw out some practical applications for your life. So how do we do conflict well? We ghost. We ghost. Okay, we're going to talk about Christian ghosting. So... Here's the thing. If you're unfamiliar with this term ghosting, uh, I think it's been around for the last few years. And basically it means vanishing without a trace from your relationships, from another person's life. Uh, Severing contact with no warning or explanation. Does that make sense? That's ghosting. It's becoming a more common phenomenon. And um, so I'm not talking about actually doing that. Okay, we're actually talking about the exact opposite. We're talking about Christian ghosting. And I'm using ghost as an acronym because it's easy to remember. I had to stretch it a little, but whatever. You guys will remember it next week. So here's what it stands for. I think we've got it. Yep, there it is. Glorifying God is G, so it's an acronym. G, glorify God. H is to honestly like own your part or take responsibility. O is to offer to help others own their part. And st is to stay together. <laughs> so... Right. So, the, so G, let's just start with the, the G. Uh, how do I please and honor God in this situation? That's the key question. If you're taking notes. By the way, I have a, um, a handout. It's over there in the communion table. I'll explain that later, but 
where the communion cups will go, on that side over there. If you want it, just take one as you're leaving today. So this is all in detail. If you don't want to like furiously take notes, you can just grab a printout. So here's the key question. How can I please and honor God in this situation? Uh, when you're in conflict, I think asking this question, like how do I please God, comes naturally to no one. It's like, it just doesn't happen. It just doesn't come up. If anybody has, please come see me later because I want to hear that story. And I'm not sure they'll believe it. Uh, not that I want to assume the worst, which is actually one of the things you do not want to do in conflict is assume the worst of other people. We'll get to that. So when we're in conflict, we don't tend to think like, how can I please God in this? What do we tend to think about? It's like, I tend to think about me. How do I feel? How is this making me feel? How have I been wronged? But the thing is, focusing on these things too much, we can easily feel justified in our anger. And we can actually become bitter. And then we can punish people by withdrawing our love and our affection, and we end up hurting ourselves, actually, because we push away the people that we need, to, we need the most. And we isolate ourselves. The good news is, though, we don't have to live this way. You can actually start with that question, how do I please and honor God in this situation? If, I mentioned this conflict earlier that I had, if I had taken the lawyer mask off, if I had just put that aside and asked this question of myself quicker, I think things would have gone a whole lot better. I think one of the things that I just couldn't see, I was like completely blind to it for the longest time, was that this conflict I was in was with a deeply hurt person. And they had been hurt by people in authority. And it had never quite healed properly. And so it was understandable that, you know, I'm in this conflict years ago, and this person's reaction to me was really intense. And I was like, why is this so intense? I don't understand why. Like, it feels like what I did wasn't a, a big deal. Um, which, by the way, that's also called minimizing and downplaying. I don't recommend doing that either during your conflict. Um, but I was struggling to figure out the intensity of the response didn't match, like, what happened. And so, but the reality was, because I didn't, I didn't get to know this person, I didn't ask questions, I didn't pray, God, how can I glorify you? What are you doing in this situation? How are you loving this person? How are you changing me? I didn't do that stuff right off the bat, and so I, didn't, I missed just a lot of clues. This was a very hurt person who had a very complex relationship with authority. And because of my role as a pastor, uh, I was in a position of authority, and there you go. So it, it, it made sense. It made a lot of sense, actually. But in the conflict that I had uh, over, over the course of time, it really did become a gift because we resolved the conflict. And actually, like, her relationship with authority improved. And we grew to like love and respect each other. And as I took the time to get to know this person, I grew to love this person and understand, like, this makes sense. The reason you react this way makes sense now because I understand where you're coming from. Jesus won. But it didn't happen until she and I both shifted our mindset and started thinking about how do I please and honor God in this and not indulge our hurt or our ego, in my case. So how do we please and honor God in this situation? Uh, sometimes, just as a side note, depending on the situation, you can ask the question, like, is this worth fighting over? It's okay to overlook an offense. If, if, you can go on, you can move on without growing bitter if you don't deal with it. Does that make sense? You don't want to move on if it's a big thing. Certainly, there's some things that would be totally inappropriate to move on from. But if it's a small thing, if someone's under pressure, someone's stressed out, someone's fatigued, someone's ill, or dealing with a personal hardship... 
which I realized, like, part of the conflict that we had in Thanksgiving, I could have totally, this falls, by the way, I'm, I'm, hopefully this is, if I've made this clear, I struggle with conflict. This is really hard for me. I think that's the reason why I, I feel like God put this on my heart to preach this message, because I suck at it. And I don't think I'm probably alone in this uh, by any means, but I really struggle, and so I need this message just as much as anybody here might need it. But I missed this. This happened on Thursday. I totally missed. This person is fatigued, stressed out, responding this way, but it has nothing to do with me and everything to do with what they're going through. And so I was there, could have been there to like lighten that person's load. And instead I was like, why is this happening? Why are you acting this way? So it's totally possible to overlook small offenses. And it might even be wise. But there's, there's things that happen where it's just, it's not realistic and it's not wise to overlook. So you move on. You go from G to H, which is honestly owning our part. Honestly owning our part. So you ask the question, how can I own my part of this conflict? How can I own my part of this conflict? By the way, this, ha- this is, I think this is going to be helpful for the vast majority of conflicts. This will not necessarily be the order I would go in with, like, big stuff. If, if there's, you know, a situation where there's, like, abuse or violence, like, we start with safety first, and then, you know, it's, just, it's a different, it's, the math is a little bit different. But this will, this will work, I think. This ghost, Christian ghosting will work, I think, I think, for most situations. So how do I own my part, my part in this conflict? Here's, what, here's a couple things you could do. Uh, number one, you can pray. That's a big one. You can just ask God to help you. How many times do you, when you start getting into conflict, do you actually just pray right off the bat? I find that it takes me a long time to actually get into the space where I even want to pray. Because I just turn inward. I'm like, what's going on? This is, I make it more about me. So I can ask God to help. Um, I can study the Bible. This is really, this is groundbreaking stuff, I know. But how often do we actually do it? Prayer, scripture, and you can ask a mature friend to help you. Not to like gossip or whatever. Um, it's, it's to help you because we all need help. And in fact, the situation that I was in uh, a few years back in San Diego it did not get better until other people got involved. It didn't get better. We just kept going in circles, arguing, and uh, it, just, it was so unproductive until we got other people involved. People that knew both of us, that loved us, that came alongside us, that helped us see things that we just weren't seeing. And so that's totally, I think, a healthy thing to do if you have a mature friend that can help you. Um, also, Tom and I are here, like, we, we're down to help. Um, we're happy to help you guys work through conflict as you have need. Uh, we'll go real quick. Number <laughs> The important things to do is uh, just breathe. Uh, slow down your anger. Don't be rash and reflect. You know that kind of like, um, there's a really well-known verse, I think it's in Ephesians, where Paul says, uh, don't let the sun go down your anger. You guys familiar with that verse? Uh, if you look at it, he's actually like quoting Psalm 4, and it's like, sit on your bed and talk to God about it, is what he's got to say. It's not so much about like literally when the sun goes down, you're in trouble, you're in sin. It's like, have you actually slowed down and taken it to God? This is, I love this. This is wisdom. I think this is super wise stuff. Uh, if we actually did it, I think our conflict would just be totally transformed. It's important to remember like the real enemy is sin and Satan. Not the other person. 
So in my situation, I forgot that, and it made things a lot worse because I was tempted to attack my sister, which the enemy would want me to do. The enemy would want me to attack the person instead of attacking my sin, instead of attacking my tendency to assume the worst about people, instead of attacking my pride, instead of working through that, I'm like, you're the problem. No, it's not helpful. So, yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's all helpful stuff, I think, to own our part. Uh, uh, there's like, if you, take, if you pick up the worksheet, there's like seven A's for making a good apology. I'm not going to go through each of them, but basically, the big one I'll note, if you can remember this, when you go to make an apology, avoid the if. I'm sorry if. Uh, I'm sorry but. I'm sorry maybe. So what ends up happening, we don't, I don't think anybody intends to do it, but it kind of cheapens, if not kills, the apology. It's the opposite of taking responsibility. Here's what I think, just so you know, let you guys into my world. Uh, when I hear somebody say, I'm sorry if, uh, here's what I hear them saying. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. Depends on if you're tough or if you're a wimp. Which are you? That's, that's basically what I hear people saying when they say, I'm sorry if. I don't think they mean that. But ultimately, it's not admitting anything specific. It's not actually acknowledging this was wrong. I did this. I reacted this way. I was short. I was frustrated with you. Um, I talked to other people about you, but I didn't address how I actually felt about you directly. I'm sorry that was wrong. It's not loving. Do you forgive me? That's like specific and direct, as opposed to I'm sorry if. Okay, you can look at those later. I think it's important to acknowledge the hurt. Uh, Sometimes we have to accept the consequences. Uh, I remember once Heather and I got into a classic. I instigated it. This is 100% on me. Uh, I instigated a fight at 3 o'clock in the morning, the morning that she was going back to work after she had Josh, which is our our firstborn. She had been on uh, on a break, maternity. It's obviously a super stressful time going back to work. And I decided, "Eh, 3 o'clock in the morning is a good time to pick a fight, is any? So, so there I went. We went into it. It obviously wasn't helpful. It wasn't cool. It wasn't loving. Uh, but here's what I ended up doing. I, I apologized, but I apologized too quickly. And the reason I apologized is because I wanted her to be okay with me. It wasn't so much because I was sorry. I was just, are we cool? We cool? Okay, let's see. We, got, we can sleep for 15 minutes. Uh, that's basically what I wanted. I wanted to be exonerated. I actually didn't want her to be well so much as I wanted to just have the feelings of guilt and shame taken off of me. So I wasn't willing to accept the consequence of this, which was that it's going to take her a little while to forgive. It's going to take her a little while to, to move on, and that's okay. I know, like, we're committed to forgiveness in our marriage and stuff, but, um, so I didn't have to doubt that, but I was not okay with just sitting in this space of, she's not okay with me right now, and that's okay. Is this, are we kind of with this? Okay, cool. I just can't tell. It's fine. I literally prayed about this. I was like, Jesus, don't, I want to just trust you and not worry about the processing face. Um, we all have one. Every church has it, guys. It's a, it's a real thing. So I love you, just as a side note. This isn't like a critique. It's just a reality. We process. So, uh, Yeah, another thing, um, this is really big. We're trying to teach Josh this. Saying I'm sorry, it's, in effect, we're trying to teach him, like, hey, that that means I'm I'm acknowledging that what I did was wrong, and 
that it's not okay to hurt you and that I want to change. It's not just saying I'm sorry and then going back to doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, it's, if it's repentance, it involves making a change. Like, this is wrong. I don't want to do it anymore. And with God's help, I will repent if it comes up again, if I do it again. So that's a big one. I know I spent a lot of time on H, but I think it's the hardest one. Typically, I don't know, like, it's a lot easier to skip H and just go straight to O, which is helping others own their part. <laughs> this is the Matthew 18. I don't have it on the slide, but if someone sins against you, go and privately show them their fault. Okay, I've got a whole bunch of notes on that. Pick it up on your way out if you want to. But this is basically like, how can I help others own their contribution to the conflict? And obviously, if you've already done the hard work of being like, I'm owning my part, you're probably going to come in a lot more gentle. You're probably going to come in a lot more tender because, like, ah, I have a role to play in this, uh, in this conflict. And so, different, like, just, I already mentioned this. As you're going in to, to help someone else on their part, don't assume the worst. Just don't do it. Don't do it. it, it, it nothing brings a conversation to, a, like, an honest exchange and shuts it down quicker than, like, assuming the worst of someone else. Nobody likes it when they do it to the, to, you know, like, you don't like it when somebody does it to you? Don't do it to them. That's called love. That's how love works. It's like, don't assume the worst? I won't assume the worst about you. I see this as someone who's done that before. So I'm not coming down on you guys. I'm just letting you know. P- please do everything you can not to assume the worst of someone. And don't even assume that you know everything that led into the conflict. Invite a dialogue. Talk about it. Hey, ask questions. Great way to do it. Okay, I'm going to skip a bunch of stuff here. Grab the thing on the way out. Um, this is big. If someone has something against you, pursue them. That's Matthew 5.23. So that's a way that you can help someone else is by pursuing them, even if they're not necessarily approaching you. And then lastly, st- stay together. Um, how can I f- give forgiveness and help reach a reasonable solution? So... Obviously, you ask God's forgiveness, you ask this person's forgiveness, and you commit to letting the offense go. This needs to be nuanced a little bit uh, for a few reasons, but primarily what we're talking about is like not allowing your heart to become bitter towards this person, and as much as is possible, not letting your relationship deteriorate because of what happened. As much as is possible. And I say that because there's going to be situations, especially in cases of abuse, where putting distance and boundaries in place will likely be necessary and wise in order to prevent further abuse. So these things, so everything is kind of, it depends on the situation. But as much as is possible, we try to stay together. Does that make sense? Okay, so I'm going to call the band up. Uh, basically, we're, we're going to be done here in a minute. I know, I know I covered a lot of ground. Grab the sheet on your way out if you want to take it with you. But basically, here's the three big things. Conflict happens when we're at odds with each other about what we want. Uh, conflict is actually a gift, okay? I think this morning that's the big thing. If you walk away with nothing else, it's like conflict can be a gift because it tells us where we're at with the gospel. And then number three, how do we resolve most conflict? Ghosting. Christian ghosting uh, can be a huge, huge help to us. And so as I was thinking about it, what would happen if we as a community really like handled conflict this way? 
what would happen if every time we had issues with each other, it actually turned into an opportunity to trust Jesus and love one another by having honest, direct, gracious, practical conflict resolution. Honestly, I think the world would know that we're his disciples. I think that's what would happen. I think others might even want to follow Jesus because they see that his way is beautiful and redemptive and it's practically helpful. So I think we have an amazing opportunity as a community to really love one another through doing conflict well. Is this making sense? So I'm going to ask you guys to stand. We're going to, we're going to, if you're able to, we're going to sing. So I just want to ask the question as we, as we head into worship, is there a conflict in your life that you need to resolve this morning? Is there a conflict in your life that you need to resolve? Where might you need the Holy Spirit to help you see your part in this conflict? And then the big one, is there a conflict? How might the Spirit help you? And the big one, I just want to think about, like, how could Jesus make a difference in your conflicts? Could we take Jesus into this? How could Jesus moving honestly and graciously towards you and me in the gospel help us move towards one another in that same way or someone else in your life? So this is just some things to chew on as we head into worship. And we'll see what Jesus wants to do.